Welcome to the New Freedom Church Podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. It was a few months ago when Pastor Rick and Chris called me to come into the auditorium to check out a new project they'd been working on. And that's when I first heard this song, It Can Only Be You, God. And upon hearing it, I felt inspired to write a message out of a couple of lines that were taken, a couple key verses from that song. And as I asked Pastor Rick, I said, send me the lyrics. I'd like to, to read up on that a little bit. I realized that the story is a very familiar passage out of 1 Kings chapter 18. But to get the context of why he did what he did, Elijah poured the water on this altar. You have to go back a couple chapters and see that nothing just happens in a vacuum. N nothing just happens all on its own. There, there was a backdrop to why the Elijah had to do such a thing, why God called him to do such a bold act and to show forth the glory of God in a time and a generation and in his day, in his age. In 1 Kings 16, it tells us that King Asa was, was coming to the end of his reign. He had reigned for 40 years, 40, 41 years, and he was in about the 38th year of his reign. Now, this is important because as I looked at this, I saw that for about three and a half decades, nothing had really gotten too upset in Israel. Nothing had really happened that, that really uh, changed the dynamic a whole lot. Of course, there are ups and downs in any generation. You can take any decade, any, any snapshot, and you can find some good things and bad things. But for about three and a half decades, nothing major had really changed in Israel. But there was about to be a power shift. There was about to be something very drastic that was happening as one king was ending his 40-year reign, and a whole new realm of kingdom was about to start and be, to begin. I begin looking at my own life and I'm thinking in the last uh, 43, 44 years that I've been alive, I, I look at for about three and a half decades, things were relatively pretty much on the norm. Things were, were up and down. Of course, we had some blips here and there, wars and, and different things in the world. But in the last couple of years, we have seen seismic changes. Why does God inspire a man to write a song of something that was of seismic changes in 2023? Why would he do that? Well, I believe that God has prophetically spoken to us through words and lyrics of a song as we go back into the word of God and we see that God takes times and seasons and he will reiterate his message again and again. The scriptures tell us that for those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. God is proceeding forth a word and a message. And so King Asa is, is ending his reign, and there is all this turbulence that is about to happen. And 1 Kings 30, uh, 16 and 31 says this, and this isn't an insignificant passage. Here's what it says. It says that as though it was a trivial thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, this change of government, this change of dynamic in the land was happening. It was almost as though God had permitted for a season of time for something to transpire, but he did not just turn a blind eye because God still sees what was happening. And it says this very interesting passage that it was as though the people thought it a trivial thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, which caused me to question what then were the sins of Jeroboam? Jeroboam's major and primary sin was that of idol worship. He had set up idols to worship 
instead of worshiping the one true God. Jeroboam was the first king to preside over a divided Israel. There were 12 tribes in, in Israel as a nation. They unified, come together as the people of God. They were to be the expression of God to the world. That was their calling, is that they were to be the vehicle by which God would birth the Messiah and the entire world would know that salvation is available in the name above every name. This is what Israel was called to do. But Jeroboam, he was the first king of Israel to preside over a divided Israel, 10 tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. The 10 tribes to the north that he ruled over had gone wayward through his idol worship. And they counted it a light thing, a trivial thing to walk in the sins of idolatry, the sins of Jeroboam. Now we think of idolatry as some kind of little statue that's, that's carved out of it and made an image and put up on a, a mantel shelf. And in that day, they certainly did make little uh, idols of, of stone and, and things that they could worship. But here is what really an idol is all about. An idol is anything good turned with affection and corrupted to be ultimate. Anything good that is made to be ultimate. The reason that God forbade idols is because they form an image to be worshiped. But we know the scriptures say that God already has an image and we are created in his image and in his likeness. And therefore, we are the living, moving, breathing expressions of what God is trying to do in the world. And when we are empowered by his spirit, not to be worshiped ourselves, but to be image bearers, to reflect the image of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And when we set up anything or corrupt anything good into being our main focus of affection, our main time and energy and effort, or our worship, anything you worship, you are ascribing worthship, worth to that thing. And God is saying to us, even today, that there is nothing more worthy. There is nothing more worthwhile. There is nothing that has a higher value than our relationship with him. And the sins of Jeroboam were sins of disunity and sins of idol worship. And then when we get to chapter 17, we see that because of all this turmoil, because of all this upheaval, Elijah calls for a drought. Now, by the direction of God, God said to him, call for a drought. And for over three years, there was to be no rain in the land. They still had some water coming from the mountains. The, the, the snow uh, caps were melting and things like that. They still had some rivers and, and waters that they could find. But there would be no rain on the land. Therefore, the crops were to dry up. The first couple of months, it probably wasn't too bad. The first year, they had other sustenance. But by the time that they were getting to the third year of this drought, life had changed drastically for Israel. Things had changed in the entire complexion of the nation. And God called the prophet, the man of God, to declare a drought. It says that then he was taken himself to a stream of water. You can read this in First uh, Kings 17. And he was fed there by ravens. The ravens would bring Elijah the food and he could drink the water from the stream. This is a, a grand uh, analogy of God's provision. When we are walking with the Lord, there is a provision that is given to us, maybe not the way that we would desire, but he has never allowed the righteous to be forsaken or his seed to beg for bread. Our God is a God of provision. And he provided for him at that stream. But in verse seven, something happens. The brook dries up. 
The very provision that the prophet had gotten used to, he didn't necessarily like to be fed by ravens, these dirty birds that eat on anything and they come and they'll bring him some food. I can't imagine eating out of a raven's mouth, but if that's all you had to eat, you would probably eat it too. And so he got used to raven's food. He got used to drinking by the brook, but when the brook dried up, he looked around and he had a choice to make. Do I stay here and just pray God to open up another brook? Or do I get moving and go out of my comfort zone and see what else God has? Now, here's, here's what we need to glean. Here's what we need to know as child of God, as someone who is walking after the dictates of God's own heart. There are times when the provision that you have gotten accustomed to must dry up because if it doesn't, if it just is a little trickle, if there was just a little bit of, of muddy water, he would probably have drunk it, but it says it dried up and therefore it rustled him out of his comfort zone to go looking for new types of provision. And God knows you better than you know you. And so if your provision has found itself to dry up, it may be that God allowed that to happen because if it hadn't dried up, you would have just stayed in your comfort place and you would have never fulfilled the purpose by which God has called you and propelled you toward something new and great in his name. Amen. And the, the prophet gets up. Now, this is amazing to me because it says in, in chapter 16 that he he declared a drought. In chapter 17, he gets provided for, but now his own provision is dried up. And this tells us that even when you follow God, sometimes there are circumstances that you will be subject to by being faithful to the word of God. That there is persecution and there is trial and there are hard times for those who know the Lord. That we don't always just have everything turn up tulips and pop up petunias, amen? There are some hard times. In this world, you will have tribulation. If someone told you, just come to New Freedom Church, just come and invite Jesus into your heart and you'll never have any problems, they lied to you. That's false advertisement. Here's the promise, is that you'll never go it alone. Amen. You're not promised an easy path, you're promised that there is a faithful friend, one that sticks closer than a brother. You will never have to go it alone but we have an advocate, a helper, a paraclete, someone to walk alongside us, the precious Holy Ghost of God, to be on the inside, to teach us, to guide us, and to direct us. But sometimes we will go through the very certain consequences when we are even yet obedient to God. You may be in this place this morning and you wonder, why am I suffering? Why am I having a hard time? Why am I in some type of a trouble even though I've obeyed God? I did what God said to do and yet it didn't turn out the way I thought it should turn out. And this is the age old dilemma of all those who have said yes to the call of God on their life. There will come times of pressing. You know, you cannot get oil out of an olive without the pressing of the olive. There is a crushing. There is a perplexity to life that things don't always work out the way that we have designed them in our minds. But that's when we turn to the scriptures and realize that God's ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's thoughts above our thoughts and his ways above our ways. And we are called to trust, to trust and obey. Elijah clearly did not have an advanced knowledge of what God was doing during these days. He did not have advanced knowledge of these drought years by declaring a drought what would happen even in his own nation to his own life. 
So he went to a brook and he was fed by ravens. He got up from there. God directed him to a, another least likely place that you would get provision. He directed him to a widow. You can read this in 1 Kings 17, how that he's approached this widow and she's making uh, the best she can do with her provisions. She only has one son. This was to be her new provision. The son dies and prophetically, God calls upon Elijah to raise the boy from the dead. He didn't see any of this coming. And then we get to chapter 18, 1 Kings 18, verses 17 through 21. Here's what it says. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, is it you, O trouble of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. These are idols, idol worship. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets to Mount Carmel. And Elijah came and said to all the people, he said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people answered him not a word. They were dumbfounded at the stark boldness of the man of God to call out the king for his very own indiscretions. Did you notice that Ahab looked at Elijah and said, oh, it's you, the one who troubles Israel. See, politics have been around since ancient times, blaming the other guy for the mess you created. That's what Ahab was doing. He was saying, oh, you're the one that called the drought. And Elijah's saying, listen, I wouldn't have had to call the drought by the word of God if you had been walking in the ways of the Lord. I wouldn't have had to call upon this punishment of the nation if you had been doing the things that you're supposed to do, but you had been walking in the ways of the Baals, of the idol worshipers. You have been dividing the people of God. And so he tried to cast off on someone else and blame it on someone else. We don't see any of that in our day, do we? We don't see anybody pointing the finger, blaming at somebody else. But Elijah was bold enough to say, no, it wasn't me, but I am just doing what God has called me to do. Elijah set the record straight by being a bold teller of truth. We in our day and in our time need some bold tellers of truth. We need some people willing to stand up with boldness and bravery to speak the truth in love and do it because we understand that this is the only way by which we can have a flourishing and fulfilling life. We cannot just simply follow the dictates of our own heart. Well, do whatever makes you happy. Just make sure that if you're, if you're fulfilled, then, then you don't let anybody judge you. Listen, I'm not here to be anybody's judge. I am called to be a witness. You are called to be a witness. We have a great judge. We are called to be witnesses of the light, bearers of the image of God. There are people walking in a judgment sentence right now on their lives, trying everything they can to fulfill that need on the inside that can only be filled by the spirit of the living God. They'll put everything in there. They'll smoke it, they'll drink it, they'll sleep with it, they'll buy it, they'll put it on credit and nothing will ever satisfy until it is offered as a life, an altar of my life upon the sacrifice of God. Amen. That is where we get our true Fulfillment. Our satisfaction comes only in knowing the creator. 
And then there's this classic question. How long will you dither? How long will you falter between two opinions? These were fence riders. They had two opinions. Well, they liked their bales, but they also wanted to worship God. They wanted to be acceptable in the religious affiliation of Israel of the day, but they also wanted to go and to worship in the ways that everybody else, the other nations, they wanted to be like the other nations as well. And so this is a classic question. And I believe it's a question even still today that we must examine our own hearts and we have to ask ourselves, how long? How long will I allow myself to be tossed to and fro, to be torn and drawn to this side and drawn to that side. Second Timothy prophesies this. He says, there is a time coming and in the last days, people will have itching ears. In the last days, they will heap up treasures for themselves. They'll be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And he said, here's the marker of these people. They will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Amen. And then he goes on and he says, from such a form turn away. From such a institution, turn away. Understand that it is not comfortable to ride the fence. And here's the prophet. He says, you have a decision to make. If God be God, then worship him. If Baal, then worship him. The story goes on and it says that two bulls were brought to be a sacrifice. And this is what Pastor Rick was talking about a minute ago when, when Elijah was going to let the, the soothsayers and the prophets of Baal of their day have their, their opportunity to prove whether their God was real. He brought two bulls and these bulls were to be sacrificed. And Elijah said, you pick. I don't care which one. I'm not going to pick the first sacrifice. You pick. He let them pick the, the choicest bull. And they took their bull. They made all these incantations. They prayed to their God. They did dances. They cut themselves. They hooped. They hollered. And Elijah, the man of God, has a comical moment. If you read this in the scripture, this is funny. He sits back and he says, hey, guys, you might want to speak up a little bit. And they look over at him and they're like, what are you talking about? He says, go ahead and chant louder because I don't think your God hears you. He's making fun of them. He's making light of this situation. Now that's bold tenacity to know that God is about to do something. He mocked them. He made fun of all their incantations because he knew that nothing was going to happen. Why? Because they were serving idols of stone and hay and wood and stubble. There was no life. There was no power. There was nothing available. But then in 1 Kings 18, verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones. Now say 12 with me. 12, that's important. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. What were they according of? Well, the scripture tells us the 12 stones were each representative of a tribe to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seeds of seed. He made this altar. He repaired it by taking 12 specific stones. Something had been broken down that needed to be repaired. 
First, he had to repair the brokenness of the worship of his nation, of his very people. Imagine that Elijah was grieved in heart about the waywardness of the people of God. These people, the 12 tribes, this was to be God's representatives to the world. They were supposed to be distinct, different. They weren't supposed to be like everybody else, yet they said, God, if you'll just give us a king, if you'll give us a king, we can be like all the other nations. And God said, you don't want a king. And they said, yes, we want a king. And this is a classic lesson for us. Sometimes with your persistence, you can talk God into your plan. He'll give in to your plan and say, nevertheless, if that's how you want it, then you can have it your way. They talked God into getting a king. And he said, if you get a king, you just need to know he's going to recruit your sons and daughters. They're going to be workers in the army. They're going to levy taxes. And you will have someone as your sovereign that is not the true God of Israel. They persisted in the lesson. They got a king. Elijah is grieved in heart, knowing that what has broken down is the true worship that God always had intended. And so... They took the 12 stones and gathered them, and he reminded them of their true identity. He reminded them of their true name. They were not named of the names of Baal. They were named Israel, one who wrestles with God and prevails. Israel, one who has struggle in life, but God gives the victory. Israel, the people of Almighty God. They were to be one nation and they were to represent God. So he takes these 12 representative of the unity. What were the sins of Jeroboam? Idols and division. He was the first king to preside over a divided Israel. And so by bringing back the 12, what Elijah is doing here is he is reinstituting true worship, but he's also saying, you're not to be divided anymore. You are to be unified. There is something powerful about this unity. And much of the crisis and confusion in the human heart really boils down to an identity crisis. Much of the reason why people are confused over so many aspects of their own life, of their decision-making, of where they should go in life, of their own sexuality, of who they should love and who they should marry and who they should be with, so much of that is not something that the church should cast off on and say, oh, you're the most horrible people. We should have a grieving heart to say, you don't know who you really are. There is an identity crisis. You are called by God's name. You are loved with an everlasting love and with cords of compassion, with arms of love. He is drawing you. He is calling you back. He wants you as his own once again. People don't really know that they are made in the image and likeness of God. And notice what happens before the miracle could happen, before the presence could be manifest, the work had to be done. The rebuilding, the reminding the unifying and the digging of a ditch. Why did he dig a trench? He was digging a trench to prepare, to get ready for the provision, for the overflow of God in the life of a nation. Elijah wasn't just digging this ditch for himself. He was digging it in expectation of what God was about to do. Do you have an expectation of something you've prayed for? 
something you have asked God for? Are there some things that you may have only shared with one other faithful friend? Are there some things that are percolating in your heart and in your life that you would love to see come to pass? For many of you, there are. Have you been rebuilding? Have you been defining the image? Have you been unifying? Because it's time now, if you expect that to come to pass, if you expect that dream to be fulfilled, if you expect that prayer to be answered, then dig a ditch. Make ready for the provision. Set the table. They're coming to dinner. Get yourself ready to go to the mailbox, the letters in the mail. Get ready to have an abundance of supply in the area of your lack. That's what Elijah's doing. He is illustrating for them visually something that they needed to see in the spirit. And look at 1 Kings 18 and 33. And he put wood, on the old, uh, wood in order and cut the pieces of the bull. He laid it on the wood and he said, fill four water pots of water. Fill four. Everybody say four. We're going to see some numbers here. Four water pots of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. So the first four were filled. They poured them all out. He said, do it again. They filled up the four again. They poured it out again. How many are we up to? Two. Eight. Four pots, he poured it out the first time. Four pots, sorry, I tricked you. Four pots, he poured it out the second time. Then he says this. Do it a third time. Four and four and four. How many tribes of Israel were there? How many times were those pots and water individually poured out? Twelve, four times three. Is my math right? This is a visual illustration of the 12 tribes coming back in unity together. When you pour out 12 times a pot of water, can you separate that water? No, this water was filled the first time, this water the second. You can't determine where it came from. And this is the kind of unity that was supposed to be in the nation of Israel all along. This is the kind of unity. The, the unity comes with a commanded blessing. Psalm 133 says, and there the Lord commanded the blessing, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I called Pastor Rick. I said, listen, I'm going through this message. I got to the lyrics part of the bridge. And I just need to know, why did you say poor? Why did you write the, the lyrics? Put them up there. Put the lyrics up there of the bridge. I, I think it's on one of my slides. Do you guys have that? Pour the water on the altar. Oh, there it is. There it is. Look. I said, why did you say pour water on the altar three times. He said, well, I just thought it sounded like a, a phrase that needed to be repeated. Something like driving a nail, you know, you, you just need to repeat it. He said, why do you ask? I said, let me finish my message first. I'm not telling you yet. <laughs> I wanted to make sure I read it again. And I got back with him and I said, so you didn't have a specific plan out of the scripture why that you did that? He said, well, I just felt like it was one of those things that needed to be repeated again. And I said, well, I think that the Holy Spirit was superintending your words, whether you realized it or not, there was something significant about saying pour the water on the altar three times because that's what the Bible says. The scripture says that they would pour the water on the altar three times. 
but not just a pitcher of water. Each time there were four pitchers of water, it unified into 12. And therefore he was illustrating for them the unity of the nation of Israel, that when they started to worship the one true God from a heart of praise and adoration of what God has done for them, when it has been rebuilt and they understood their true identity, then they were unstoppable. And God was about to set a fire. Elijah prays a 63 word prayer. You ever found yourself not really knowing whether you're praying the right way? You ever found yourself really hoping that, that you could say it right or that God hears it or maybe the form and the function is proper? I'm going to tell you, all it takes is a 63-word prayer. That's all he prayed. Here it is. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And that I have done all of these things at your word. What's he saying? I didn't do this of my own authority. I'm not here speaking to this nation because I'm some great prophet or I'm, I'm so eloquent in speech. He said, I only did this because God, you commanded me to do this. Let it be known. I did these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that these people may know that you are Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Our Bible is divided into two testaments, an Old and New Testament, an Old and New Covenant. At the closing of the Old Covenant, Malachi prophesies, and he says some words that were reverberating in the hearts and the minds of God's people for 400 years until we get John the Baptist and the writing then becomes of the new covenant. For 400 years, there was a famine of the word of God. There was a drought in the land for three and a half years in Elijah's day, but after the close of the old covenant, for 400 years, there was no new revelation coming in the form of scripture. Malachi told us that there was coming a day when the hearts of the fathers would be turned to the sons and the hearts of the sons turned to the fathers. And here's the prayer of Elijah. He said, do it today as a sign and a symbol that you are turning their hearts to you again. Having a heart for God does not mean that you lose all fun in life. Having a heart turned to God does not mean that you cannot enjoy the blessings of your vocation and the blessings of God's richness in your life. In fact, what it means is that you will enjoy them more. But having a heart turned to God is a sensitivity that when the Spirit of God speaks up and prompts you, you leverage your all of life. You leverage the altar of your life to spring into action, to make sure that you are walking in accordance to the commands of God in your life. That may mean sometimes of sacrifice. That may mean sometimes of giving. That may mean sometimes of putting yourself out, of exercising your own time and investment into something. He was turning their hearts again. Here's the question though. 
What was the purpose of the water being poured on the altar? What was the purpose? Wasn't the fire going to be enough to convince them that God had done something? What was on top of mind for the last three years of these people? It was a drought, right? So the purpose of pouring water on the altar was so that everyone in the land who had their fixation on this drought, this lack of water, when fire was about to fall from heaven, this was miraculous, but it only proved, listen to me, it only proved to eliminate the very thing that was already scarce. The, the water being poured down was a sign and illustration that you can't cause a fire on wet wood, but it was also a sign that the very thing which they desired, rain, water, was now about to be wasted. And some people cannot grasp a miracle of God before their very eyes because all they have in focus is a God of limits, a God who limits their fun, a God who limits their abilities, a God who wants to keep them in strict little, little forms and, and modes, a God who takes away already these scarce resources. So they try at all costs to run from God and hide from his presence. But what happens next? <laughs> this is not only miraculous, this is more impressive and more needful and beneficiary for the people than the fire that came down. Now this was a hot fire because it not only consumed the wood, it says it consumed the stone and the dust and the water. Everything was consumed by this fire. But watch what happens. This is even more amazing. First Kings 18 and 41. Then Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. For there is a sound of an abundance of rain. Rain? We've been in a drought, man. What are you talking about? Abundance of rain. He says, so Ahab went up and he drank and Elijah came and he went and he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go and look towards the sea. And he went and looked and there was nothing. The first time that you're looking out across your, your new now found faith filled eyes, you may not see much. It may not look like anything is happening. You prayed a prayer at church, you came to the altar, you said yes to God, you look out, oh wait, nothing's really happening. But here's what he said, go again. He went again. He went seven times, numbers are important, right? Seven is the number of completion. At the seventh time, his servant came running back and he said, I do see something. It's a cloud, it's about the size of a man's hand. Well, how are you going to get abundance of rain out of a cloud about the size of a man's hand? The whole land was parched, it was dry, hadn't rained for three years. How are you going to get abundance out of that? And then it came to pass the seventh time he went, rising out. He said to Ahab, go prepare your chariot for if you don't go now, the rain's going to stop you. Look at verse 45, it says, now it happened at the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was heavy rain. So Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. The hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. He girded up his loins, he ran. He outran Ahab's chariot. Now that was a fast foot race by the Spirit of God. The drought had ended. Rain has now come in abundance. The miracle wasn't the fire coming down. I mean, that was impressive, but the miracle was now what we have longed for, what we have prayed for, what we have desired has finally come. God pouring this down. Three times this water came down on the altar. It was the prophet's way of signaling to them, your dry season is past. Your dry season has ended. And someone prophetically needs to hear it in their ears by the spirit of God today that your dry season is over.
that God has the sound of an abundance of rain. That which has been scarce is now abundant. And God has more supply than you have need. I know that's hard to believe when you're in need, but God has an abundance of supply. So here's my question. Do you need a miracle of provision in your life? Have you been avoiding God because you don't understand why what has happened has happened? Maybe today you need to allow faith to rise up on the inside of you. And with me, you need to declare that your life is an altar and you need to make the declaration, God, pour water on the altar of my life. Pour the water on the altar of my heart because it can only be you, God.